Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And this morning, we close out our long and intermittent study through the book of Ephesians. We begun, we began about two and a half years ago and have slowly, every few months, made our way incrementally throughout the book. It's been my joy to behold the glories of Christ's redemption and to worship Christ privately and then publicly with you through this book. But by God's grace, we have seen beautiful theological mountain peaks in this epistle, summits that rise into the heavenlies, unfolding the mystery of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Paul has showed us time and again how God's story in the gospel, the first half of the epistle, utterly transforms our story in the latter half of the epistle. As we reckon with who Jesus is and how God the Father intends to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on the earth, to the praise of His glorious grace. All things have been put under Christ's feet. He is the head over all things. So in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. And you can see these things if you want to casually just be looking and skimming your way through the book as we make our way through toward the end. But we have obtained an inheritance that is incorruptible and is God's promised Holy Spirit. This is a guarantee of the full glory that is yet to be fulfilled and given to us in glory. Those predestined in Christ were nevertheless at one time sons and daughters of disobedience, dead in trespasses and sins. But as chapter 2 tells us, but God, being rich in mercy and His great love, He made us alive together with Christ so we might boast not in ourselves but in grace. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not a result of your works. Rather, we are the workmanship of God, created now, hardwired for good works. Paul makes clear that Gentiles who once were far off have now been brought near to the promises of God, first given to the Jews and now made available to the Gentiles in His grace, creating one new man, one new humanity. He, Christ, is their peace. For He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility by creating one new man in place of the two. Now Gentiles, like just about every one of us in this room, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. This mystery of the gospel, Paul is ecstatic to be the one. He knows not why, but he has been appointed to unveil the mystery of the gospel, proclaiming Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body, displaying the manifold wisdom of God before a watching universe. And as this new community, united in Christ, they are reconciled Jew and Gentile believers, they must come 
to walk worthy of this high calling, to bear Christ's name before a watching world. They must speak the truth to one another in love, stave off decay, expose the spiritual rot of moral darkness, and to build maturity within God's unified covenant people. They're no longer to walk in the futility and the emptiness of their minds, but rather to live in purity and wisdom and holiness. They are to walk in love as they imitate God. They are to submit to God's authority structures, in particular those within the marriage and the home and the workplace. And these spheres demonstrate small little examples of areas over which Christ is declared that He is Lord. So these are the themes and many more than the terrain that Paul has traversed over this entire epistle, which leads us to the closing chapter. So last week we examined Paul's unique focus on the armor of God and how each piece corresponds with a particular Christian virtue that believers are called to take up or to put on so that they might stand against the assaults brought about by temptation within and without. We noted Paul's emphasis on preparing for the battle, of knowing the enemy, and then on fighting with God's divine weaponry. All of this is in vain, though, if we battle in our own strength. That is why he heads off this admonition with a call that Christians must be strengthened. Is how the text reads, be strengthened in the Lord and in His vast strength. So, and it's the call to be strengthened in the power of Christ that then propels Christians to take up and to put on the armor of God. So we left off last week after considering all six pieces of the armor, but we still haven't concluded Paul's train of thought. He's still moving along the same track, and he's not done. Paul now wants to drive home the integral nature of prayer when it comes to spiritual warfare. So Paul doesn't think that taking up a piece of the armor here in terms of yet another piece, as if he's going to say, and don't forget the spear of prayer or the, the shin guards of prayer or some other aspect of Roman armor that he hasn't touched on yet. That's not the direction he goes. Quite intentionally, Paul understands prayer to be how believers stand. It is how they battle. Be strengthened by God, Christian, so you'll stand through prayer, by means of prayer. In both his chapters, or in chapter, both of his prayers, in chapter 1 and chapter 3 in Ephesians, Paul's already modeled for us what it looks like to pray theologically packed and, and truth laden prayers for his fellow citizens in God's new community called the church. So here at the end of chapter 6, he begins to riff on the theme a little bit more in a rapid-fire phrase upon phrase set of descriptions that are given for how prayer should pulse within the heart 
of the spiritual warrior as his very lifeblood on the field of battle. So indeed, prayer is the very foundation for the Christian on the field of battle. So we see here, beginning in verses 18 through 20, we see prayer as foundational to spiritual warfare. We read in verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So we see right there in that opening phrase in verse 18, the expectation that prayers should be ongoing and continuous. Our prayers should be ongoing and continuous, praying at all times. So if spiritual warfare is continuous and ongoing and happening at all times, it stands to reason that the engine driving our engagement in that warfare, prayer should be continuous and ongoing so that we might stand. And what danger befalls the Soldiers fighting in the trenches when their lines of communication are severed. In fact, one author notes, he says, prayer is a walkie-talkie for warfare, not a domestic intercom for simply increasing our conveniences. What's even more amazing is how prayer is a line of communication that you and I did not initiate. It was a means of communication we didn't start. Now imagine that you somehow stumble across the phone number of your favorite athlete or someone in society that you know you'd naturally never, ever have a conversation with, but someone knows someone and you have their phone number and you call it. And in our day and age, of course, it's just going to go right to, you know, we're going to decline the call. But let's just say that the person answers. And shockingly, even more, they have a conversation with you. And you walk away after 10 minutes saying, I think they actually enjoyed that conversation. I mean, that, that's amazing. But even amazing as it is in that sense, imagine if the athlete got your number and initiated the other way, right? And they felt they, they took on that communication initiation. What does that say? The, the, the joy in that. God has initiated in Christ such communication and fellowship that is possible through Christ's reconciling work for us. Now we have His ear on the battlefield at any moment as we continuously labor to be strengthened in His might, knowing He set it up that way. It is not a result of our own doing. Now, many of us, we hear this phrase that our our prayers should be ongoing and continuous, and we simply have no idea what that looks like. I mean, it sounds depressing, quite honestly, as we know how challenging it is to simply have a short time of prayer each day with the Lord. How can a whole day be filled with prayer? Is this just one more example of the Apostle Paul living in the clouds, living the Christian life that none of us would ever have a prayer of of aspiring to? Well, speaking perhaps in in a helpful way, John Owen, perhaps the most brilliant of the Puritans and chaplain to Oliver Cromwell, he wrote the following on prayer. He said this, 
Pray as you think. Pray as you think. Consciously embrace with your heart every gleam of light and truth that comes into your mind. Thank God for and pray about everything that strikes you powerfully. Pray as you think. Now, we think all day long, even those of us that cause some to question that reality. We do. John Owen's advice here is fuse together these actions of thinking and prayer, communication with the Lord. If you're a computer programmer, an engineer, a healthcare worker, you work in a call center, you paint walls, you manage people, you run a business, you market products, you shuttle children to and from school, in all these circumstances, your mind is at work. You are thinking. Consider how it is to translate the regularity of thought into an upward momentum of prayer before the Lord. Prayers of thanksgiving for the honor that comes from a hard day's work. Prayers of gratitude for the dignity you derive from creating a product that provides a service that helps people. Prayers of praise for gracious, God's gracious provision of your work or your coworkers or the training that you know God allowed you to have to be able to do whatever you find yourself doing. Prayers of worship as a gleam of light, as Owen says, of God's common grace is seen in everyday moments that can strike you powerfully. And oh, that we would translate these moments into brief words communicating with our Lord. But even in, beyond this, and perhaps especially in the hardest moments, the fiercest, hottest moments of the battle, when sorrows or temptations rise, continuous, ongoing prayer, is how Paul envisions normal spiritual warfare for the Christian. Perhaps on an even higher plane, this is why the Scriptures implore us as the people of God to hide God's Word in our hearts, to know it, to be routinely meditating and memorizing it so that we have that divine weaponry ready like Christian fighting Apollyon as we considered last week from Pilgrim's Progress, we are ready with the sword of the Spirit to do battle by means of prayer. Thinking God's thoughts after Him, meditating on them, and then wielding them in the battle is how believers wage war against Satan. Secondly, the next phrase is that our prayer should be in the Spirit. So our prayer should be submitted to God's Spirit. Not only is our prayer to be continuous and ongoing, but in the Spirit. What does this mean? F.F. Bruce writes, he says, Praying in the Spirit means praying under the Spirit's influence and with His assistance. This, however, does not mean that we enter into some sort of mystical trance-like moment when we speak or act in unintelligible ways to ourselves or others, Paul counters this idea in 1 Corinthians 14. But as Bruce continues, he says, It is no criterion of the power of the Spirit that a person praying does not understand his own prayer. On the other hand, 
There are prayers and aspirations of the heart that cannot be well articulated. These, are, these can be offered in the Spirit, who, as Paul says, himself intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. We might note even how closely following verse 17 that Paul points out it is the sword of the Spirit right at the forefront of praying in the Spirit. Almost a a dual wielding of these twin weapons of Scripture and prayer. And in all our prayers, may all of them be subjected to the Spirit's will as we come before the Lord. The next phrase, with all prayer and supplication, we see that our prayers should be varied and they should be expansive. So at first glance, this may be a bit confusing in the English Standard Version. How are we to be praying with all prayer? Praying with all prayer. That's maybe not super clear as we read it. But I think what Paul means here is that we are to be praying every kind of prayer with every conceivable form of prayer. So in our lives, as we engage in spiritual warfare, we offer prayers of praise to our triune Lord. They should abound. Prayers of thanksgiving for spiritual victories won should abound. Prayers of confession for treacherous, treasonous thoughts and actions should abound. Prayers of intercession for fellow soldiers under great duress should abound. Prayers of petition for those considering abandoning the fight altogether to serve the evil one should abound. Prayers of wisdom pleading for insight and clear direction in warfare should abound. Prayers of supplication that the Lord of armies would come quickly and return in triumph to take His people to their eternal rest. These kinds of prayers and more should abound from the people of the Lord. In our spiritual warfare, we should reach for every kind of prayer as we labor to stand against the schemes of the devil. Next, Paul writes, he says, to that end, keep alert. Verse 18 continues. And I thought rather than putting a, verse 18a, b, c, d, it would, verse 18 should suffice. But we see as the, his thought continues, our prayer should demonstrate vigilance. Keep alert. Speaking of his own return, Jesus says to his disciples in Mark 13, Be on guard. Keep alert. For you do not know when the time will come. As a doorkeeper watching for his master's return at all hours of the day and night, believers should expectantly keep alert for Christ's return. Similarly, with respect to prayer, believers should remain vigilant in the fight. Eyes wide open. As we discussed last week, keeping alert and remaining vigilant presumes something. It presumes the buy-in that the warfare exists. Not a small threshold to cross. It is there and it is deadly. Is this our heart attitude and the disposition as we go about our lives? That through prayer, we would keep alert Paul continues, with all perseverance. Our prayer should demonstrate 
a perseverance about them. Paul begins the book of Ephesians telling the Ephesian church that he does not cease to give thanks for them as he remembers them constantly in his prayers. That's not to say that his conscience is such that if he were to look at a clock, there's not been a single minute or second on the clock that has escaped, that he has not been in active prayer. What he means is that generally speaking, the disposition of his heart is that it is regular and ongoing, and he loves to pour his heart out in prayer for his beloved friends, brothers and sisters in Ephesus. It was the hallmark of the early church that they devoted themselves to the word and to prayer. As another scholar notes, in Greek literature, this phrase was oftentimes used to express the relentless pursuit of something or, quote, to persist obstinately in something. Now, no one enjoys watching someone quit at something, do we? Whether it's on the athletic field or in business or in life, following a setback or reeling after a really hard situation, seeing someone throw in the towel prematurely when there's more left in the tank, so to speak, is, it's sad. It's disappointing to watch. And yet how many of us, when a trial comes our way, the situation unfolds before us, we may offer up a prayer or two, and if circumstances don't unfold, we just shrug it off. I tried. I prayed about it. it didn't go my way. We fail so regularly. I fail so regularly to persevere in prayer. Paul calls believers to leave it all out on the court, so to speak, to contend for the faith, as Jude writes, by means of a persevering prayer, a prayer life that doesn't quit. What a convicting thought. And yet this persevering prayer life in our context this morning is directed not merely towards our personal concerns or our personal growth, but in Paul's thinking here, it's toward the people of God in supplication for all the saints. His next idea, making supplication for all the saints. Our prayers should find a corporate expression So just as spiritual warfare is inherently corporate, we do it together. It is the church of Jesus Christ that will prevail. The the gates of hell will not stand against the war church, the war assembly of the people of God. Our prayers are to have a corporate aim. This means our prayers do not merely remain tethered to my spiritual life and limited to supplication for my kids and my friends and my loved ones, but rather for all the saints. This means prayer for the spiritual growth of fellow church members who I disagree with on this topic or that topic, or who I find irritating or off-putting. This means prayer for fellow believers who are members of other churches that preach the gospel, but perhaps see differently on significant issues. This means prayer for God's kingdom to grow as the gospel is preached in our city, in our country, through the ministries we support around the world and the ones we don't, for the church plants that we are integrally involved with and those that God willing we will plant in the future and all other outposts of the kingdom of God who serve the Lord Jesus Christ and are faithful to his 
gospel. This also means there may be a spiritual disconnect within us. If I believe myself to have a vibrant prayer life, but I never avail myself of the times when Christ's body, the corporate gathering of His people, gather to lift prayers to the Lord in corporate expression as an assembly. What immense joy we derive from praying together on Wednesday nights, all-night prayer vigils that head off every year, prayer projects where we seek to grow in our skill of praying the Bible in home groups, ladies' Bible studies, men's small groups, Sunday evenings, these sorts of gatherings. There is nothing like learning how to pray when hearing others lift up their voices to our Father. Corporate prayer is itself a means of fighting sin, and as a discipline itself, it nurtures unity and God-centered love within the people of God. And as verse, in verse 19, the Apostle Paul calls himself out now as one among those saints for whom the Ephesians should be praying. So in verses 19 through 20, he sees that our prayers should plead as the Apostle Paul is pleading here for gospel clarity and gospel courage. He writes, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul no doubt desires the same freedom that Moses longed for when he was called to go stand before Pharaoh and announce that God was about to emancipate his chosen people, Israel. Paul knows he needs a a loosened tongue so that the unveiling of history's grand narrative of redemption in Christ would be clear. How easy it would be for us if we put ourselves in Paul's shoes for a moment. If we were writing this letter, if we were chained to a Roman guard under house arrest to plead for God to free us from that situation, right? Perhaps we'd ask people to please pray for yet another one of those awesome earthquakes like happened in Philippi when I was with Silas. That was amazing because not only did I get out, but a lot of people got saved too. It was a win-win. Pray for that. That's what I really want. And while he could have said that, while we probably would be inclined in that manner, that's not his focus. Rather, he focuses on the glory of the gospel going forth. He asked that the manner in which he delivers the gospel would not be timid, but would be bold. Boldness here inherently implies explaining or announcing or revealing or making known truth of something in the face of probable opposition. We don't need boldness to say things where we know we're going to receive a favorable thumbs up, right? Paul knows where he's going in the fray of spiritual warfare and that he needs courage. And even the toughest of the tough, the battle-scarred special forces Christian elite like the Apostle Paul knows he would be a timid coward if not for the persevering prayers for boldness 
on behalf of his brothers and sisters in Christ. So as Paul begins his closing remarks, his gaze is yet again on the collective witness of the people of God. And just as they have become a new humanity, a new society, a new community, a new dwelling place for God as his temple, they together must own and steward the work of God among them. Paul and his ministry, in a sense, is their stewardship. It is their responsibility. Paul expects all the saints in Ephesus to care about his welfare, to care about his ministry, and to care about his ministry partners, namely Tychicus, whom they're called to receive for mutual encouragement. So we see secondly here, second main categorization is a stewardship as foundational to fruitful ministry and accountability as as absolutely essential for Paul's ministry. Let's unpack this a bit. Paul writes in verses 21 to 20 and 22, he says, so that also you may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So Paul assumes something here, right at the beginning of verse 21. He assumes that the Ephesians are wrapping their hearts and wrapping their prayers around God's work through him. They care. He's like, now, he's not saying, now I know you've got busy lives and I know your own spiritual warfare is enough. And that, that, that's as it. he assumes that there is buy-in, there is an ownership that while he is not in front of them, with them, it is wrapped around their hearts. I so appreciate whenever Dan or other elders uh, may travel across the world and report back on a Sunday evening from time to time about work that was done. There's, there's usually a careful way of speaking that this is a reporting of Eden Baptist Church on mission in India, or Eden Baptist Church on mission in Philadelphia in partnership with this church. But there is a sense that, that there's not this, now I know you've got busy lives and I know we have a lot going on, but, but if, you'd, if you'd care to know, there's, no, there's a sense of as God's church, we must own and steward the work of God. Paul hasn't written us this amazing treatise so that we would just scatter we are a people, a community of the Lord that involves a deep stewardship of God's work. As he writes, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of love. That takes careful gardening, careful attention. So it would seem that the Apostle Paul has the same spirit as he knows the people to whom he writes and is deeply invested in their lives. And now they want to know how he is doing, and they want to know what he is doing, as they ought. Through the New Testament, Paul makes it clear that he does not practice cunning or engage in sleight of hand that seeks to leverage 
the ministry God has given to him for personal gain or personal interest. He is transparent. He is forthcoming. He's honest as he bears Christ's name in prisons or in public squares or in private homes. And what's instructive for us to grasp here is how Paul's words about spiritual warfare and standing against the evil one directly precede this call to care deeply about the health of Paul's lifelong church planning endeavors across the known world. I expect it that you are in the game with me. Let's not miss that. If you care about standing against the schemes of the devil by waging spiritual warfare in your personal life, but care very little about the health of Christ's church, something has gone terribly awry. So ask yourself, do I care deeply about the work of God in this church? Do I display in how I prioritize my time and even my schedule to make that commitment a priority within my home, within my life? Do I lament when I am providentially hindered from fellowship or prayer or even rejoicing in a similar report of what God is doing through this assembly? Is that at the forefront of our hearts as His people? Even if you're a young person here this morning, are you deeply and knowledgeably invested in what God is doing among us? So know this, in our present cultural moment, when it, gives, when it appears as if everyone is being called upon to channel their inner activist and give a voice to some cause or some issue or some organization or some underrepresented group, and we are called to lift up our voices in this sense. And if you're not, you're quite odd. In a context like this, know that there will never be a cause greater to you to get behind than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There will never be an entity more universe-altering in its results than the church of the living God. And there will never be an organizational leader more compelling and transformational than the one who sits on heaven's throne. May his vision for humanity capture our gaze. And may we trust his plan for redeeming a broken world. And rather than now giving a, a long, extended personal report, Paul simply tells them that his dear brother, his faithful servant in the Lord, Tychicus, will share more with them. All the juicy details, perhaps. All the personal exciting stories that Tychicus knows. All the nuance and discussion that Paul has had with him, perhaps even as this letter is coming about and is being written. From all we know, Tychicus is one of Paul's missionary colleagues, presumably with him there in Rome as kind of a personal aide, personal friend, perhaps his amanuensis, the one writing down what he is dictating. Tychicus is said to be from the province of Asia, so his hometown could have been Ephesus. He was apparently so deeply trusted by Paul that Paul considered him sending, uh, being sent with Titus to Crete to minister there. And Tychicus, Paul's beloved brother, faithful servant in the Lord, will travel with three precious letters in hand. 
Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, along with Onesimus, Philemon's runaway slave, also said to be Paul's dear, beloved brother. Tychicus, in particular, was apparently a brother in the battle with Paul, ministering to his spirit and encouraging him consistently in Paul's ministry. Now Tychicus was an ambassador for Paul, and a really good one at that. One of the blessings of stewarding the work of God among us is that co-laboring partnership in the gospel that we share. As perhaps our eyes are not staring into one another's eyes, but we are looking onward to the mission before us and laboring side by side. We lock arms and we feel the thrill and the joy of ministering together for the greatest cause in all the universe, the gospel of Christ. So in typical fashion now, Paul provides a word of benediction to conclude his glorious letter to the Ephesians. He writes in verse 23 and 24, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. A benediction is an invocation of God to bring about blessing for the good of his people. So here Paul offers a prayer aimed in this direction. Peace, faith, grace, and love mentioned three times. All expounded in full form throughout Paul's letter. And as he brings them back into view and highlights their importance, he prays for their presence in the lives of believers. And he underscores the spiritual work that God is doing in them for his glory through Christ. The new people of God, Jew and Gentile, one holy temple in the Lord, the dwelling place of God by his Spirit, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, we need to remain anchored in the peace of God, which Christ has won through the redemption we have through his blood, it is the grace, it is by grace that these believers have been saved through faith so they might walk in love as imitators of God who are themselves God's beloved children. These four overlapping concepts converge in a mighty river of theological power. So Paul pleads that the same matchless, incorruptible love of which the Ephesians have come to experience in Christ, would now be dispensed through them. As a testament to, yes, indeed, God's transformational new life that has begun in them as the new covenant unified people of God. A call to prayer, verses 18 through 20 especially in the face of spiritual warfare, an admonition, verses 21 and 22, an expectation even to wrap our hearts entirely around the work of God among us, and the word of benediction here, that grace, faith, peace, and love would abound in one's life. What better counsel, what better charge to our two brothers here to be baptized this morning? that they would enter the waters of baptism 
identifying visibly for all to see that their lives are hidden with Christ in God, that they are members of this one unified community called the church that God is building for his glory. May these brothers wage spiritual warfare personally and corporately among us as men of prayer. May they then steward the work of God among us with hearts that are wrapped fully around the church as God's unrivaled display of his glory in the earth. And may they love with love incorruptible. For those here this morning who have no affection for Christ, they find no appeal of this glorious vision for a redeemed and restored humanity, one that knows the lordship of Christ over everything. Christ nevertheless calls you today to turn from sin and the chains of the evil one, to step into the light, believing that God's ear can be yours in prayer, but only through the intercessory mediating work of Christ. Should you bow the knee to his lordship and trust in faith that he's your only hope. As the people of the Lord gathered here this morning, Ephesians concludes compelling us, even expecting us to own as our privileged stewardship the precious blood-bought enterprise of Christ's glorious church as ground zero for expanding God's glory and proclaiming Jesus' lordship over everything until we breathe our last or until Christ returns. Will we, as his people, answer this call? The church in Ephesus had a decision to make. Would they hear this? Would it fall on deaf ears? Would they obey? They know the voice of the Good Shepherd when they heard the scriptures read to them some 2,000 years ago, and we know it today as well. This is God's counsel to us. Will we respond in faith and obedience? May it ever be true as we expend ourselves to this end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious epistle. We are awestruck of what our condition was, how bleak it was as sons and daughters of disobedience. We're amazed that before the foundations of the world, you would predestine us to salvation, that our eyes would be open that you would have a plan to make a people for yourself, a new refashioned community by grace alone. And Lord, the glorious future that we long for. But in the here and now, Lord, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness. This is before us, Lord, and may we not only take up the armor of God, but may it be empowered and grounded in lives that love to pray. May we not yield to the functional atheism that is prayerlessness, Lord. May we be stripped of our pride and live as a desperate people who know we need the grace of God lest we fall. Allow our prayers to be at all times, to be continuous to be ongoing, vast and varied, expansive. May they not merely be for ourselves, 
but flowing into a love for all the saints. And may this assembly own the work of God among us in such a way that we steward it well and hold it as dearly as anything in our lives, that we love the agenda set forth by which God is displaying His glory in the earth through the church. And we pray now that you'd glorify yourself as we hear testimonies of this work of transformation done in the lives of two men. May our hearts soar with thankfulness to you and be appropriately provoked to love and to good deeds toward one another. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.